0: find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive.
1: We coined blended micro which is not getting rid of the human moments of learning. That's the good stuff. <laughs> when Michael learns you know, how to pull the perfect espresso on the espresso machine and get certified in that machine, he should also be able to get feedback from his manager and potentially even be certified as a trainer. So with Opus, you can actually track data against those skills and also against the feedback that managers are giving you in real time around a specific skill that you've learned. That's that social learning aspect that's so important and leads to better businesses.
0: This is Rachel Nimit, CEO and co-founder of Opus, which is a training platform designed for businesses with a deskless workforce. It helps more than 300 businesses boost their training off the front line. Rachel has an amazing background from operation and hospitality, where she's worked from great brands like Danny Myers, Union Square Hospitality. In this conversation, we dive into why and how she got the idea of Opus, and what problems they're solving. We also explore the biggest barriers for great training of frontline employees and what she's learned about learning and development in the last two years, and what the role of learning plays in building a great company now and in the future. We talk about tech's roles in building better and more impactful training and how tech really can accelerate the speed of learning in a constantly ever-changing world, as well as about how exactly learning and training is crucial for you as you build your culture. She also shares the learnings as a CEO and how to adapt to the role as the business grows. Before you tune in, please sign up for our weekly newsletter, Maverick Talk, which is packed with more Maverick insight, strategies, and tools. You'll find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. This conversation will make you think about training as well as how tech can help you boost training capacity in a new way. Enjoy. I am super excited because we're going to be talking about something today that we uh, have touched upon before here on the show, but not in the, in the context about how technology can solve this problem, because there's no doubt about it in the world we live in now and the pandemic probably accelerated that being able to reach your frontline employees very quickly and share the right information. And I could train them in the skill that needs to do a great job or do it well so that both the employee and the customer feels they have a great experience. It's so critical. And that's, in principle, one of the things of many we're going to be talking about today. But that was actually what made me really excited when uh, Rochelle reached out to me. I think it's now about three, four months ago. And then we've been talking a bit and taking the time to get this into you. Put in place. But I'm really excited about having you here today. I'm I'm really looking forward to dive into uh, Opus and all your learnings about training.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Can you just like for people out there, I've already alerted to a bit, we're going to be talking about tech and training, but could you just give people out there a bit an overview about, I think it's very important, your journey really led to this product? Tech solution you're doing today, and you can dive a bit into this. So I don't butcher your solution, uh, but also like why you started Opus and why you saw the need.
1: Yeah, well, they're they're inextricably linked. Um, my story and and why we started Opus. Um, so uh, the long story is one that we should probably have over beers, but I'll try to keep it short because uh, <clears throat> every founder's journey is much longer than what they're actually saying. But it all started um, in restaurants. I spent 13 years in restaurants, um, in every position, um, in later years in operations, and spent my whole time in restaurants trying to get out of restaurants, um, for obvious reasons for all of our listeners here. um, You know, you're underpaid, you're overworked, there's no mobility, uh, and there's no upward mobility. And so anyway, that ran in parallel with an interest in um, teaching and second language acquisition. I thought, okay, restaurants is just a side gig. I'm paying off my loans uh, from college. This is how I'm going to do it. Um, but what I really want to do is uh, be a professor or an instructor of linguistics. And so, uh, because language has always been a passion of mine, so. What I would do is I would teach, I would. I was in restaurants working in operations, most recently for Danny Meyer at Union Square Hospitality Group. Um, I helped open up Untitled at the Whitney. Um, you know, I had to hire 300 cooks in 30 days. And um, was really not surprised and yet simultaneously flabbergasted at um, just the lack of access that I as a director had To great technology for my frontline. You know, everyone in the home office had great tech. I'm in every job that I had seen. Um, But my frontline, which was like the majority of our team, right? It's 80% of the workforce, didn't have any great tech. So, um fast forward uh, a couple of years, and and I started to solve this access problem because I was really mad, <laughs> and I started with the thing I knew how to do best, which was training um, folks in english. thirty three percent of American workers don't have don't speak English as their first language. Um, brick and mortar schools are not a solution when you have second jobs and kids and commutes. So, um, started to teach English, um, in restaurants between shifts. It was like guerrilla English, right? We would go in for 90 minutes, teach an English class and leave. And that over the years evolved to a really high demand in New York city for, uh, restaurants to pay us, to go in and teach English classes. And then that evolved to a company called ESL Works, which delivered English language training over text message, really innovative solution to help um, give like a lightweight technology that can help people learn quickly. And then fast forward to today, um, Opus is a a massively expanded vision of that access problem, uh, which is helping restaurants get their team up the productivity curve quickly, and then getting more out of them so that there's um opportunities for economic growth for everyone so um that's the very fast story of how this all started and all really began with me just being really mad to be quite honest
0: (laughs) what within that in that story what is like the the core you know you call the purpose vision the mission of opus then because you said that it started with a very, very simple thing. You walked in, you did some English training, will then translated into a text message, but now it's into this platform that can be in the hands of people in no time if they have a smartphone.
1: Yeah. The, the mission really at the heart of everything that we're doing is um, solving the problem of how can we create more work, help people create more work val- value for themselves and um, in order for them to have economic growth. In and outside of their jobs, um, work value is this term that we coined, which is centered on um, skill building. It's centered on um, agency and self advocacy, and, self-advocacy. and um, you know, it's it's a it's an area that is so commonly focused on when it comes to desk workers. You and I. Right. Um, And we're constantly talking about leadership skills and soft skills and ways to grow and ways to get promoted and ways to earn more money and ways to support your family better. But then we go downstream to the majority workforce, which is the front line. There's no conversation about actually creating work value and actually being able to um, not only build skills, but be able to to like create a skill portfolio for oneself so that you can continue to grow. And, and, you know, Michael, these are not unskilled workers, we all know this, but there's no way to actually track that data so that individuals can, um, you know, earn for themselves what they hope to in their lives. So the mission, the the core of our mission is about creating accessible technology for frontline teams so that they can create more work value um, in and outside of their, their job.
0: And uh, what have you seen, you know, especially connecting to that, you know, very critical mission in, in a world of so much, you know, disparity and, and difficulties climbing the ladder. And it seems like we're going to to What have you seen as you launch the platform and people start using this? What What have you learned? I'm thinking about what do you learn from the frontline employees or the deskless workers that's using this app? What is happening in their lives?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, a little bit about Opus, I mean, we, and I know you're talking about this a little bit, but Opus is uh, a mobile-first training solution. We're not on text message. Um, that was my previous company, ESL ESLWorks, um, in the early days of Opus, but we have a mobile-first solution that can reach the frontline very quickly. Um, and simultaneously, we have a lightning-fast web dashboard that allows anyone in your organization to build a lesson in under 10 minutes. So think about that and what um, the possibilities are when for the first time you've solved the access problem where a director of ops has a limited time offer and they can create a lesson really fast and ship it out to 2000 employees quickly so that they learn what's happening in the company and everybody can learn that knowledge consistently. You know, when we talked to frontline workers to really understand like what's the core problem, we also talked to the other two users that were largely ignored, which is, the manager who's <laughs> never built for right and of course the the person who's in the c-suite who's buying the product but never really uses it because they need someone to to manage it well with opus um, we were able to solve for all of this the one thing we heard from frontline teams was like listen like the the one piece of technology that i'm using every day at work that no one's actually talking about is my phone I'm using it to snap a photo of food i'm using it to look up something quickly on youtube individuals are self-educating every single day at work and there's this falsehood that your phone is stowed away and you're never using it but it's just not the reality of what's been happening in the last half decade so frontline workers are demanding technology that's on their phones and so we listened and you know, it was clear when you have people, you know, screaming your name and saying, this is amazing. Like for the first time, I actually am learning something interesting and, and I'm learning it directly in the palm of my hand. And I feel like I actually have a companion to my work day. Um, you know that you're on the right track. But all none of that matters unless you're also hearing from their uh, manager that their manager is getting the data they need in order to connect and build connective tissue with that frontline worker. So um, that's sort of a a long winded way of saying that when we talk to frontline teams, it's always coming down to this word, um, access and reach. And, um, you know, that's why it's such a core part of our mission.
0: And I guess then because one of my next question was actually, and you probably answered that was like, what are the barriers to to great training of, of frontline employees. I guess that's the axis of, and then relevant training, I guess, as well.
1: So there's never an issue with relevancy. And I think that's um, a, the one of the common mistakes when people are talking about training and they're like, ah, eh, it's not you know really relevant training. It's not even reaching your team in the first place. So that's, that's false information. Um, You know, most of the time what we find is that businesses are using paper training. 70% of American restaurants are still using paper packets. You know, these (laughs) oil-stained manuals, um, which of course don't reach anyone, but they'd rather use that than technology that they know will not reach someone, which is like an email-based, web-based solution that was built for folks at Goldman Sachs and works for those people because they are sitting at a desk all day, but then it was repurposed for the front line, which means that it's completely illogical for that workforce. So, um, so adoption is a huge challenge that we had to solve early on in an opus. And, um, you know, you see that you don't, you even see these challenges with like um, less, kind of mission critical tools, scheduling apps, stuff like that, which are a necessary, you know, technology, but just sort of like a, well, you got to have it, you got to have scheduling technology, Um, but you still see the adoption issues. So when, when we think about like the broader technology landscape, we continue to ignore how important it is to create technology that is easy to even log into which is why you know at opus you don't need an email you need a phone number where where people um you know it's it's unique to one person it is easy to memorize it is secure for that person and so um it always made sense to us to use phone numbers rather than emails that's a very simple answer for you know a very complex problem but I think if more technology companies thought about unique ways to log in (laughs) team members, I think they'd see a higher success
0: rate. And it's really interesting as well what you're saying that it's like there's a lot of relevant training and it's actually good, but actually it's not purpose for where the frontline employees are today and when they need it. Because you said something really interesting before because people were already Googling for solutions so what about like I was thinking as you were saying that are they and I guess they were also showing it to other people in their restaurant. Oh, I've found this about a coffee machine, you know, whatever it is online. This works. This is the trick for the coffee machine when it does that. So Does Opus also facilitate that sharing between the the employees when they have great ideas they can share with the management or who it is? Because often, as my own experience as an ops director, MD of a chain, is that you think you know everything and I'll have all solutions to all problems, but often you're not there on a day-to-day basis, so you don't know that specific location what works for them, all the smaller hacks that really make it deals. Yeah.
1: Well, so I love what you're talking about because I think it speaks to our approach and what's unique here. So just to get, we're going to get a little bit nerdy just for a second on instructional design. Um, so uh, if you're not an instructional designer, it's important, to, or, or uh, an operator who's kind of nerdy about training, it's important to understand the different methodologies um, of learning. There are tons of studies that show that micro training works. There are tons of studies that show that you know, as the global attention span is shrinking, we need to be taking in information in smaller snippets. You can only remember three pieces of information for every 90 minutes of learning. Um, so lots of, of good needy research that proves that these kind of micro moments are the things that lead to higher knowledge retention, higher knowledge re- transfer, and therefore more efficacy in your, in your workforce but that doesn't mean everything has to be digital. So you're talking about this like social learning aspect. Opus uses um, uh, an approach that we we coined um, blended micro learning, which is not getting rid, and this is so important, not getting rid of the human moments of learning. That's the good stuff. <laughs> when Michael learns, you know, how to pull the perfect espresso on the espresso machine, and get certified in that machine, he should also be able to um, get feedback from his manager um, and potentially even be certified as a trainer. So with Opus, you can actually track data against those skills and also against the feedback that managers are giving you in real time around a specific skill that you've learned. That's that social learning aspect that's so important and leads to better businesses. Um, But right now what's happening in the state of the millions of, of businesses across the United States is that there's no visibility on that data. Every manager has these like amazing coaching moments of their team and they're not actually tracking that. What would happen if for the first time every single business that employed deskless workers actually had data on every moment that a manager was coaching their team? For the first time, they'd be able to see that how effective every part of their business was um, because those touch points between two humans actually can help you understand um, how effective your managers are and by extension, how effective your team is. Um, so the sharing piece and the sharing of knowledge is so critical um, in the world of work. And I think for the first time we've cracked the nut um, to say, yeah, so let's capture the data. <laughs>
0: Uh, it's really interesting what you say there because um, I spend, and we're working on a study right now, we're going to publicize later in the year, but it's in principle looking into companies that's doing really well and what they do. And uh, uh, and everybody would say, oh, it's culture. But if you start to break that down, what that means is that they learn people, their culture, the way of things, doing things, they train them really well. But then in the end, they measure them. And They have you know different forms of measurement, but I can see that what you're talking about again, a platform that proves that these what your people will in in the old paradigm of business will call soft uh, soft skills or soft measurements is become hard measurements for them because they know if they hit these points of training and that level of skill with that employee understanding the culture, the vision, the purpose, or the the customer service, how to deliver that, or the coffee machine, they know they're gonna win. Maybe not directly tomorrow, but over time, they know X amounts of months down, this will come back into the business. And that's how they, they measure business. And it's so interesting because lots of people only do what's measured. And now you can measure what's really important in my view, and always have been important if if you invest in it, of course. And now you can see how much time you're investing it before you can see, and then you will see an outcome, I guess, financially. That's actually a really interesting question. The the, the companies you have worked with, what has happened in them as you have started working with them, implementing the platform, and they have you know, adapted the adaption curve of adapting the approach and really getting to work out in the front line?
1: Um, it's simple, they've lowered labor costs. <laughs> This is so. What's unique about how we see the world is, and I'm gonna get glib for a minute here, but like, there's a reality to frontline work that I think we've we've seen all these headlines, um, you know, around uh, the the war for talent and the labor shortage and all these things, and that's true, and it's it's reality um but what businesses are actually talking about is not necessarily how can i get people to return to work it's how can i do more with fewer people and um uh that's uh, as a result of a combination of multiple things that are happening in the world today um which means that more now more than ever businesses are thinking about how they can get higher output from their team which means uh you know you know i'll give you an example from the last recession in 2008 just because you're lowering headcount and lowering labor it doesn't mean you're lowering your demand for high output and so it's really important for businesses to think about how can i reduce those labor costs but increase the output of the the people that are working are working with me um as a result of that our one of our many metrics for success. And, you know, there's all of the learning metrics, but the business metric, the thing that businesses are really looking for is not, hey, can I just reduce turnover? That's where I'm getting really glib. They're actually thinking about how can I reduce labor costs. Um, So we've been able to show that we can reduce training labor costs by up to 60, sometimes 80% with businesses saving them $100,000 a year. So think about that for the first time, employees can just train on the floor for a few minutes a day. You can track data on them. You don't have to throw them into a linen closet to learn or or a classroom. They don't have to step off the floor in order to train. And that's what's happening in every single restaurant today is this kind of unseen cost where like Judy has to hop off the floor for 10 minutes to take that training or to talk with that manager or to have a team meeting what if, for the first time, you could do all of that asynchronously, um, track data on it, and be able to to show that for the first time you're actually getting those labor dollars back?
0: So, so it was really interesting you said about turnover um, because lots of business I've been involved in, like that's a, a metric you could you could be uh, measured on. And there's like you know sometimes you're not absolutely in control of that turnover that, uh, because it's a transit you know industry. But what have you learned around turnovers as well? Because my, my hypothesis has always been that if you give people skill and you train them, give them transferable skills, they feel that actually they get confident enough they can leave you, they actually stay for longer or they never go because they know they're getting something really, really special. They're not getting in maybe 90% of other places.
1: And that's where ramp up becomes really important. Um, it's about the speed at which, you know, I tell this story all the time but what's happening right now in businesses across the United States and we'll talk about restaurants specifically is that somebody's walking through that revolving door and the managers looking at them and they're saying, "Hey, are you are you breathing? Okay, you can work here." It's like literally that's what's happening. So, what happens is there's this enormous challenge for businesses. These managers are stretched thin. So there's this question of, well, how can I make sure that Michael feels welcome from the moment he walks through that door? It's impossible to send someone to a corporate office. Now there's no time to be able to, um, like gather your new hires in your first week. There's no like cohorted onboarding training and especially the, there's a, a there's no rise in training managers. That's a reduction in training managers right now. So you have to replace, Um, A lot of that with software. So we believe that the faster you can ramp up your people, and there's lots of studies that show this, the faster you can ramp them up, get them up to speed on your company culture, your values, what their job is, the more likely they are to stay longer. And it might not be for a lifetime, but it could be that you're going to be able to keep that person 90, 100, 1000 days longer simply because they had a better onboarding experience.
0: That that's super interesting uh, because I guess also that, like consumers, the the employees that now has the, you can say they have the negotiation power. If they arrived in a company and they feel it doesn't go fast enough or the employee experience is not really giving them the training is not really coming so they can do a great job and feel good, then they will just leave quicker. And I guess it's your job as the the business or the CEO or the the the, the department is and responsible for this to create that experience so it actually feels like it's moving very fast and they almost I guess this is a guess because I've not seen data but but they almost expect it to be digital most of it. They don't expect it to, somebody to come and train them.
1: Um, I think they if they do expect it to be digital, um, they expect it to be a legacy system, the kind of dinosaur systems where they have to go into an office and log in and, and it's only in English and it's uh, so imagine that if you're walking into a business and you're like, oh, I have to sit in front of a computer for three hours and complete this sexual harassment prevention and I have to watch you know this ages old video and then you know my manager maybe comes in to check on me once but then doesn't ask me any questions about it doesn't make you feel welcome. Um, so there's no, uh, you know, I don't think there's like an immediate demand for digitizing training. I think the broader demand from the frontline who now has more power than ever is to, it's basically like walking through the door and and it's like, what, what do you got? <laughs> what do you have? Um, I think what we're hoping with Opus is that Opus can be the thing that You know, ultimately, frontline workers are demanding and saying, do you have Opus here? (laughs) Is that how you train your team? Because, um, you know, that is the way that we want to be um, capturing our skills and and being able to demonstrate our value over time. Um, So, uh, and we're already starting to see early signs of that. Um, you know, 20% of our business right now is from managers referring us to other companies, which is an, you know, that's our metric for success. If people are referring Opus, (laughs) then we know we're doing a good job. So, so yeah, I don't know if like the demand is for, for digital necessarily, but the demand is for better, um, for better technology.
0: Uh, And that's a way interesting. So if you do that, I guess you have a competitive advance when it comes to attracting people yeah in, exactly yeah exactly what was like anything because we've gone through the pandemic i know you're you're launched in, in the midst of all that chaos as well uh, opus and what has like been you know the learnings around you know learning and training that really have blown your mind it's like it's like one thing where you think wow that was like that was changed was changing over these two years
1: it's mm. a great question um this was something that we saw pre-pandemic um, that was trending already, but the pandemic accelerated it. Um, and it's this, uh, it's the fact that um, the training function in these businesses is now increasingly falling under the operations arm and not HR. And why do you think that is? Well, it's because HR now has more on their plate, right? If they're overseeing all of these these safety protocols, like pandemic protocols, things like that, compliance, um, you know, we're living in an increasingly litigious world. And so like the traditional role of HR is starting to come back to light. Um, So that's one thing. But also, I think, and more primarily, businesses are realizing that training must be an operational function, it must reach every part of your workforce at every step of their employee journey. So it would be a mistake not to say, well, of course, our COO should be overseeing the efficacy of our workforce. And therefore, of course, we should be thinking about the most effective uh, training and upskilling program we possibly can, because when you're only thinking about training in a compliance bucket, it's only about 15% of what's actually happening on the job. So the pandemic just catapulted that due to like hr being stretched thin and, and needing t- you know to be focusing on these really critical parts of the business and, and COO saying shit. well i <laughs> i have like less people i need to be thinking about how to attract those people but also how to keep those people longer and get them up the productivity curve faster
0: i can remember myself been in numbers of jobs where actually training has been on and off in true hr and back over to operation and uh, the other way again and actually it fitted always best in operation because they're the one that's going to be using the training and therefore hr can of course from a strategic point of view support you on making sure you have the right skills in your training program as the future uh, are needed for attracting you know talent of the future
1: well and i'll tell you this 100 percent of our business is dealing with If we don't sell to hr we love hr we talk to them and we they're <laughs> friends of ours but you know the reality is that when businesses think about training differently when they think about training as a mission critical function it's typically the operations arm that's really look taking a holistic view and saying okay it we need to partner with hr on this we also need to make sure that the output of this program is something that in, is impacting the business the business's bottom line um, in a really meaningful way.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting that actually the CEO is now not just responsible for training, but I guess also they have become much more responsible for tech solutions because these tech solutions really impact their business. Like it's people and tech that really drive these day-to-day businesses now.
1: Yeah, and the rise in IT and tech in restaurants, we all know, we've seen it with, you know, just over the pandemic, a lot of the spotlight was on these on-demand delivery companies and things like that. Um, But that's not why the IT function is being positioned, like placed in all of these restaurants. It's not just because of that one piece of technology. It's that we are, um, there is an entire stack that a restaurant needs to manage right now. And that is um, not exclusive of of the training function, and and frankly, just like the efficacy of your front line.
0: If we take the conversation a bit out of tech and training, and from you know your experience being very close to the uh, both to the the operational part of the business, but also the the front line, what do you see as um, you know the biggest challenges for food and drinks businesses uh, right now, and and in in the nearby future? Because there's so much going on. Still, we are out of a pandemic, but uh, there's, it seems like some very big mountain to climb ahead as well.
1: I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think one of the, the biggest challenges that restaurants are seeing right now um, is, sure, it's how can I attract more talent, but it's more about um, how can I increase the efficiency of my workforce, increase the productivity of my workforce, um, especially with the direction that Uh, you know we're we're entering a recessionary area era this is how operators are thinking right now these are the conversations that we're having at opus so i think we're going to see a lot of the headlines start to change um in you know qsr from qsr mag to you know the guardian it's going to be less around the the war for talent and i think it's going to be a lot more around um what are kind of the metrics for success in a business when it comes to our our frontline um, and how can we ensure that we're getting, um, you know, that software is used to enhance the humans that we employ. Cause we don't want to, we can't replace those humans with technology, but we can definitely ensure that we're um, helping to empower them to get the most out of their day, basically. And, and by extension, hopefully it means that we can keep those people longer, pay them more, um, and, you know, increase opportunities for growth.
0: Yeah, and that really confirms something I've seen and heard as well, is that that's been very focusing on how technology really could help the customer experience, where there's now a shift that there's a radical acceptance of the war for talent, the, the lack of people. But how do we then make that experience better? And how do we use tech to make that a more effective experience not just on the, the HR side of, of software but also like operational how do we make their day easier because they get burned out and frustrated by things not working and the information they didn't get that's really you know the the the, the progressive and forward-looking operators working that they, they haven't got it all right but they're definitely working on that and understanding that that actually is a massive gap in 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 their business uh, where they probably the customer facing technology is a a bit more slick and seamless in in many ways what about you? So, you know, you founded a business. Uh, you elevated that or pivot that or whatever you want to call it during the pandemic. And now you you have this platform out. It's going really fast. Uh, customers need your product. It sounds like there's a big need and you have lots of success, but also that... that's that's a big challenge as a founder ceo i know and it'd be great to hear your your learnings as well over the the last couple of years and what is your struggles and what is your victories and
1: Mm. i think um you know uh growth and adjustment and iteration are just a natural part of any business especially a technology business where you can make changes quickly Um, So that is something I think that's to be expected. Um, But one thing that I think has um, really been just personally interesting for me is just my growth as a CEO. And, you know, I'm entering a new chapter where uh, for a while there were, like the, the kind of reporting structure was different. I had a hand in so much of the business down to the nitty gritty and all the way up to the high. It was a lot of like zooming in and zooming out. Um, cause we're still pretty early stage, right? But, um, but now I'm entering, you know, chapter three, I guess, <laughs> of CEO, which has, um, been super interesting for me. It's the part where I'm like primarily zoomed out and I'm helping guide people, um, continually guide people toward our vision um there's like this this uh you i find myself like captaining the the mission more and more and as a result of that it's continued to challenge me to kind of re um confirm our vision and our mission um and iterate on it and maybe create a second mission and and really kind of um expand our our view of the world from like what's gonna happen five years from now to what's gonna happen 20 years from now. And what's the immense impact we can make on the broader world. So it's been a really uh, like meditative experience for me, but also a really important one. I think the thing that like a lot of CEOs don't talk about is this process, which is like, okay, our company is growing up that's because we're growing up and we're changing and we're evolving, you know, I think about like, um, CEOs who I admire, like Noah glass from Olo. And I, I wonder to myself, you know, the, the CEO of toast, like what happened in that transition for them when they went from a private company to a public company, that's gotta be in a totally different evolution as a CEO. So, that's the fun part We're like I'm learning too, I'm training too as a CEO every day.
0: Yeah, and then I guess you, you're never done on that journey and it's like also like going through these phases also does something with you. You become the person you need to become.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: To face the obstacles you face in, in any businesses because there's more obstacles than the eye can see sometimes both, both internally and in the reality of running a business. Uh, um that's super super interesting what what is um what is one advice you would like to give in that transition as you said that's not something that's talked about when you transition from the smaller startup bootstrapping to raising funding to to scale up what is like is there like an one advice you would like to give to founders they or question maybe they should think about
1: yeah um I give this advice all the time, and I try my best to follow it, too. Um, sometimes I forget, so that's why it's good to say it out loud. Um, as we're all transitioning in roles, um, be mindful if there's ever, ever a moment of self-doubt. Be mindful of imposter syndrome. Be mindful of the moments where you need to talk to a friend or talk to someone and say, listen, like I'm feeling this. I'm feeling like... I'm not worthy of this job or, or um, I can't do it. And a lot of the time that's imposter syndrome creeping in. And the best remedy for that is to talk about it um, and to find a friend and to get a support system because otherwise you're just gonna enter this vicious circle <laughs> of like, uh, I can't do it. I don't know if I can do it. Um, and I say that from a very vulnerable point of view um, because I, I think and frankly like especially especially as a, a female CEO, you know, we're kind of forced to have this like hard edge all the time and can't be vulnerable or have to be a different kind of vulnerable. And um, I'm I don't think that that has to be true. So the best advice is, find a support system, even if it's one person to talk to and and be vulnerable with when you can.
0: Yeah, and, and, and the funny thing is if when you show, it's been my own experience, your vulnerability, it doesn't mean you can... You know, of course, you're the leader of the business. You don't run around and vulnerable all the time. But when you do, and I had uh, Paul Hargraves on the uh, the podcast uh, recently. He runs uh, like a business uh, for wholesale food dispute and he he said after he's been doing some very purposeful work in Kenya for school kids. He came back and he was crying to his staff and they know he cries sometime now because the, the business is so connected to purpose, but actually that gives them drive as well that you actually, uh, you're actually honest about how you feel, but it doesn't mean you're, you have lost control. You're just honest about how you feel. Uh, um uh, and often we are not never in control anyway. That's the, that's the reality. We just that's a whole other that. podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a whole <laughs> other podcast. How do you then, as like you know yourself, like you're growing up as the CEO? How do you actually show up pro every day? How do you get like the best out of yourself, make most probably positive impact? How do you actually try to keep yourself in in a good place because you you know, it's very, it's a very tough place to be, to keep the balance as well, and make sure you hit all the the areas of life.
1: Oh gosh, I'm still trying to figure that out, but I will say I'll talk about the physical, and then I'll talk about the mental
0: and emotional.
1: Um, so from a physical perspective, um, one big change for me, and I don't like preach this a lot, it was just like, it's, it's not advice, it's just for me, it worked personally. Um, I cut way back on coffee. Um, I only have a cup of coffee a day, and you know, I was drinking four or five cups a day and starting to get jittery because I didn't like that feeling of being tired. I didn't like feeling groggy. And now, you know, as long as I'm getting six to eight hours of sleep, yeah, some days I might wake up and I'm a little tired, but, um, that's okay <laughs> um, and and to replace it with a stimulant um, I sound pretty woo-woo right now but like it's been great for me like I I'm, I'm the curve of my energy is so much more natural um, I'm not I don't crash at seven o'clock at night I like stay up till 10 or 11 I wake up at like five or six um, you know and I kind of listen to the rhythm of my body where, you know, everyone, we all, every person who's listening has that like half hour, one hour in the day where you're like, oh, well, this is where I get a little, you know, flatline a little bit. I don't replace that with coffee anymore. Now I just say like, okay, this is the time where I'm going to do that. Like work that doesn't require a lot of strategy where I'm going to like pay the bills or I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to, you know, um, as a result of that, I felt like a lot healthier physically. Um, and a lot more mentally balanced. From a mental perspective, I've really just tried to ensure that I'm like maintaining the support system I need, um, and it's changed over the years. So you know, I try to keep family and work as separate as I possibly can. But I'm also like open when there's parts of my work life that are just um, penetrable and <laughs> and like leaking into my world. Um, I used to, you know, years ago when I was working in restaurants, I would bleed every part of my work life into my personal life. You know, this if you worked in restaurants. And then when I switched to software, I like kept them highly separate. And now I'm trying to find this like really nice natural blend of because I love my job and I love the work that we do. um, But I also want to have moments where I I shut off too. And I, you know, think about the business, but um, it doesn't have to like penetrate um, every inch of my being and by extension, that my personal life doesn't have to penetrate every extension of my work life.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting uh, because we asked this question, uh, or I have asked this question many, many times, probably more than 200 times on the show, and everybody has their own algorithm, as you says. and uh, funny enough, coffee is actually one of them I took up this year as well, and trying to keep to one to two cups a day because I like, I'm am I'm really, really, really love coffee in many kind of ways because that's why I worked in a coffee world so so but again i found the same as you absolutely the same and then uh, i i create those moments around the coffee also to be moments of stillness in the morning when i get up before the kids get up and i use it uh, after lunch too as well to just get a bit of fuel to the afternoon and i also like you just accept there's times during the day where you're gonna flatline and just you need to lean into them go for a nap a walk do something that doesn't demand a lot of brain power
1: because it's not actually, coffee doesn't, or any sort of stimulant, doesn't actually make that go away. <laughs> 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 um, that's like the, 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 the lie that we've been told is, okay, well, you can replace this. Hour. If you drink an espresso for this hour, you're going to be really productive. And it's like, no, I just have like a buzz in my head. I'm not actually any more productive than I would have been.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, your clarity of your your mind is not bigger than that. If you should give like an advice to uh, to leaders out there, and I think I'm tweaking this question today a bit, like the ones to build a business, uh, for that actually you know are good or great because they've implemented you know healthy training practices. What would your advice be?
1: I will tell you where you should not start. Do not start by saying, okay, in order to have a great training program, we need to document 100% of what's happening in the business. Why do you think that's a bad thing to do? Well, <laughs> it's because we are working in an incredibly dynamic industry. So the task of documenting everything all at once up front is actually, it's a fool's errand. Um, there's, you know 60% of what we're doing is is uh probably consistent for the next year right um job descriptions roles um how we up you know how we get new hires up to speed perhaps but even that i would say is dynamic you know about 40% of it is changing on a constantly based on supply chain based on the um you know inflation rates and and menu prices based on uh customers and how they're flowing in through our our stores so the advice i have therefore is just start Um, and it doesn't have to start with like i'm going to document everything it can start by saying okay is technology the best solution for us if you're a multi-unit restaurant it probably is Um, that's what we continue to find and don't be afraid to just start with one or two use cases when you're digitizing your training Um, we've seen this a lot there's like when people are on these land of like legacy learning management systems they'll tell us stories around how it took them two three years to get all of their training up and running and we're sitting and you know talk with my co-founders and we're like it just doesn't have to be that way (laughs) you don't have to take years to get your company knowledge into a system it can take a couple of weeks so focus on a couple of use cases new hire training and role-based training or safety training and You know just in time training and kind of expand from there but none of it matters none of it matters if you're not getting it to your front line in the first place so you can get feedback from them so um start small
0: yeah that's a very good advice because i think that doesn't only go for training it goes for so many things yes (laughs) start small for for good sake start changing slowly one percent every day becomes a lot over time. If people want to know more about Opus and you and connect with you, uh, where where do they go? What is the, the best places to go?
1: Um, so you can always follow us online, uh, follow us on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Instagram, at um, Get Opus or Opus Training. Um, you can follow my rants about legacy systems on LinkedIn. If you follow Rachel Nemeth or connect with me, I'm always happy to connect with folks um and we we put a lot of work out there so you can there we write a lot of thought pieces around how we think about the world of learning and how we think about the world of operations as it relates to training um so check us out and you know pretty much any publication for restaurants we're probably in there um waxing poetic about the beauty of technology and learning qsr magazine things like that
0: great great stuff and we'll put some of that in the the show notes as well Thank you so much for for coming on the show, sharing your your insights, your journey, your learnings, both uh, from a from a tech company serving serving restaurants, but also your journey as a, a CEO. Uh, we wish you all the power and energy you and the team needs to to success and helping you know frontline employees getting more work value, as you called it, a new word I learned today, because I think that's an absolutely critical thing if you think outside solving business problem, but actually helping people to climb the ladder.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was great.
0: Thank you so much, Rachel, for your great advice on how to optimize your training and your insights on what we can learn from aggressive companies that use this tech to boost the effectiveness of their training and thereby build better culture. Now, Ask yourself, how can I use tech to boost the effectiveness of my training for my frontline employees? If you want to learn more about learning and development, please tune in to episode 73 with David Clarkson, founder of Talent for Performance on Self-Leadership. A big thank you to Biz Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies and tools to help leaders become better every day. Check them out at BizSimply.com or on the social at BizSimply or BizSimplyHQ. You can also email them directly at advice at BizSimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlton, who is the show producer and editor for the podcast collective. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review or subscribe to one of our channels, which all can be done via the website hospitalitymavericks.com. If you have any ideas or feedback for the show, or thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the weekly newsletter Maverick Talk via hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tingsdale, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick Podcast Show. Be Maverick!